Great to see you guys this morning. Uh, my name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm excited to share God's word with you this morning. So Jarrell mentioned earlier that uh, over the last 10 weeks or so, we've been walking through this teaching series looking at the famous Ten Commandments. And this morning we're wrapping that up. So this morning we're hitting commandment number 10, uh, which Pat just read for us. You shall not covet. You shall not covet. Okay? Um, I think if we're being honest with ourselves... Uh, we, we get to this last commandment and it feels a little bit anticlimactic, right? Because this, this great list of commandments, it starts with these really lofty commands about, about sort of dictating what our relationship with God looks like and, and how we are to worship God exclusively and how we are to live a life where we never bow down to idols and how we are to do things like intentionally set aside a whole day once a week for rest and for worship. And then we move from these lofty sort of worshipful commands into these very, uh, these very practical commands about how we are to live in society and the fact that... Like, like we shouldn't murder people and uh, we shouldn't uh, sleep with people that we aren't married to and we shouldn't lie and we shouldn't steal. Uh, these are great laws and, and these are really important laws. But then, then we get to number 10 that says, and don't covet other people's stuff. <laughs> really? That's what I think. When I read this last one, I was like, really, that, that made the list. That's number 10, huh? That's kind, of a, that's kind of a surprise. It's kind of a surprise to me. I think that it's easy for us to wrap our minds around the prohibitions against overtly criminal activity, right? <laughs> like things like uh, murder and theft and the like. Yeah, that, that makes sense to us. But a law against coveting, really? Don't desire other people's stuff. Don't want after things that aren't yours, Sort of a, it's sort of a weird command, I think. <laughs> Certainly it's unique. It's unique among this list. See, while all of the other commands, the, the, the first nine, dealt with external actions, this one, number 10, focuses instead on our internal desires. It's focusing on our internal desires. And throughout history, many people have viewed that as problematic for a number of reasons. One of them is like, how, how could you ever enforce that? How could you, like, you can't see what's going on in, in my own heart, the things that I'm wanting. And so, so how, do, how do you enforce it? More than that, just in general, how do you legislate thought, <laughs> right? How do you make commands against what we're allowed to think and, and, and like and whatever? It's difficult. Uh, it's, it's problematic. And so many scholars, many theologians throughout history, uh, in an attempt to reconcile commandment number 10 uh, to the other commandments, uh, have sort of uh, rephrased its meaning. They've, they've redefined it. Essentially, what, what the perspective by many has been is, is this, that the 10th commandment ultimately doesn't really, doesn't really prohibit coveting. Instead, it only prohibits coveting if that coveting leads to other sinful actions. In other words, it's not really a sin to desire your neighbor's husband or your neighbor's spouse or whatever. It's only a sin if that desire in you gives way uh, to scheming in order to obtain them. Now, that's certainly a logical conclusion. Right? It makes sense why people's minds uh, would, would go there. Here's the problem with that perspective, though. That's not what the commandment says. <laughs> That's not what it says. It doesn't say don't, don't covet because if you covet, that might lead to greater sins, right? 
The commandment isn't qualified or justified with a clause or an explanation. It's simply stated, you shall not covet. You shall not covet. We don't use the word covet very often today. At least I don't. Uh, and so I think it, it might be helpful just for a moment to dive into, dive into that word and take a look at it. Um, I think it's worth noting. So uh, in, in Hebrew, the word covet is this word hamad, hamad, which it actually implies not just wanting something, but there's a certain degree of intensity or passion about it, passionately longing for something. And so, so coveting, it's, it's not the same as simply wanting something. To hamad is to, is to greatly desire. It's to, it's to yearn for. And this word hamad, we come across several times in Scripture, a couple dozen times. Uh, I think one of the most helpful times we run across it, though, is in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 5. And in the book of, of Deuteronomy 5, Moses is essentially giving his final sermon. It's his final teaching to the people of Israel before he goes on to die. And, uh, and he's reminding them about the Ten Commandments, okay? And, and he, he gets to the Tenth Commandment, and he restates it for them. He uses slightly different language, though, that I find super helpful. So I've got it up here on the screen, the two verses side by side uh, for Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. And what you see in Deuteronomy 5 is he said, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And he goes on to say, you shall not set your desire on, right? Set your desire on. That's pretty descriptive. There's a sense of, of yearning in this language. There's a sense in which this thing that, that, you, that you're, you're coveting, it's capturing your attention, it's capturing your desire. In other words, you don't just want it. Right? You need it. You need it. That's coveting. So, it made the list, right? Coveting, it's one of the top, it's one of these ten commandments. And so what we know is that coveting apparently is bad, right? It's... It's a problem, and I want to dive into the problem of coveting this morning. And so for those of you who like structure, like taking notes or whatever, here's a roadmap for the morning. We're going to look at three problems with coveting, three problems with coveting. First, I'd say the problem is that it's universal. Secondly, it's destructive. Thirdly, it enslaves us, the three problems of suffering. And then finally, if we'll have time, we'll uh, take, a look at, take a look at the solution to coveting. But uh, before we dive in further, let me, let me pray for us real quick. Heavenly Father, it is good to be together this morning as your people, and it is good to look together uh, at your word. Your word is true. Your word is something that we need. And so I pray that you would be with us as we dive in. God, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to guide our time wrestling with these truths. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would inspire our reading of, of these ancient sacred texts this morning in the same way that you inspired the writing of them thousands of years ago. And God, I pray that as you do uh, inspire our time together in your word, as you, you lead and guide this conversation, I pray that you would use it for our good, uh, that you would use it to... Um, not only inform our minds with interesting or helpful information, but to do the deeper work of transforming our hearts and making us more like Jesus. God, so we love you. We declare that we need you in this time. And again, pray that you would use it for our good and for your glory in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen. All right. Three problems of coveting. Problem number one, coveting is universal. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that everyone does it, right? I think coveting is something that we do all the time, right? In all likelihood, you've probably already coveted at some point this morning. I know I did. Um, I, I was coveting. I was intensely yearning uh, for the sleep that my wife and children were experiencing at 5.30 this morning while I was running through the sermon in my mind and trying not to, uh, to stress out about it, right? Coveting. I think there's a sense of inescapability from, cover, from coveting. See, this, this, this final commandment is, is set apart in that regard, in its universal nature. This is, this is what I think. I feel like, I feel like someone who tried hard enough, who really tried hard enough and exerted their best effort could possibly, possibly keep the first nine commandments. They tried hard enough, they possibly could. Someone could do that. I mean, I couldn't, right? I couldn't, but some of you maybe. Jacob Radomsky could, I think. He's a a really good Christian, guys. He's super good at it. No, but there's, so commandments number one, right? Like there's this, there's potential attainability to them, if you want to discuss it that way. I think, I think it's, it's possible to, to imagine that somebody could manage to follow one God exclusively with their life, that they could avoid idols and the misuse of God's name. I think somebody with enough time management skills could conceivably keep the Sabbath and they could probably consistently honor their parents. I think if somebody tried really hard, really hard, they could maybe even keep from murdering people, right? And, and sleeping around. And I think that people could refrain from, you know, grand theft and perjury, right? Like that's all, that's, that's all possible. It might, it might not be easy, but it's possible. But when it comes to this 10th commandment, to coveting, I think we're hopeless. I think to some degree we can regulate our actions, but, but when it comes to our thoughts, when it comes to our desires, I don't know about you, but I'm going to mess that one up. I'm going to mess it up. I do regularly. I'm going to fall short on this Ten Commandment again and again. Some of you guys are familiar with Martin Luther, 16th century German uh, reformer. He had a beautiful quote about this very idea of the sort of the unobtainability of the Tenth Commandment. Right? He says this, The last commandment, then, is addressed not to those whom the world considers wicked rogues, but precisely to the most upright to the people who wish to be commended as honest and virtuous because they have not offended against the preceding commandments. Yet, we all pretend to be upright. We know how to put up a fine front to conceal our rascality. (laughs) You see what he's saying here? He said, were it not for this final, were it not for this final commandment, I think it'd be pretty easy It'd be pretty easy for the most holy among us to puff up our chests and become really, really proud about how good we are at outwardly conforming to these laws. It'd be really easy to get really proud about our performance, and yet that is the same prideful self-righteousness that Jesus spent his time attacking in the Pharisees, right? Saying, yeah, look at you guys. You look pretty impressive. 
You look pretty clean on the outside, but inside you're rotting away. He says you wash the outside of the cup, the outside of the dish, but inside it's full of filth and death. Right? What does this 10th commandment do? I think it humbles us. It humbles us to the ground. It causes us to see, as Luther says, our rascality. Which is an amazing word, by the way, right? I read that word. I was like, I'm using this quote. It's so good. Uh. Said differently, we get to number 10 and we realize there's something deeper going on here. These commandments aren't simply designed to curate our behavior. They're also designed to humble and soften our hearts. You know, interestingly, people, um, people always remember what Jesus did with these commandments. If you remember in the Sermon on the Mount uh, in Matthew 5, Jesus takes these commandments like to a whole new, a whole new level. Right? He establishes this whole new ethic which then, in which he says if you, even, like if you harbor anger in your heart, it's as though you've committed murder. If you harbor uh, lust in your heart, it's as though you've already committed adultery. And, and Jesus is doing something brilliant here, right? Because he's using these commands to reveal that God isn't simply looking at our outward actions. Those matter, but that's not his only intent. He's also uh, He's helping us realize that what's happening in our hearts is absolutely every bit as much revealing of our sinfulness and our brokenness. Here's what I find interesting, is that Jesus wasn't the first person to do this, right? To apply the law to our hearts. It starts right here, <laughs> right here in the 10th commandment. So this theologian, Albert Wynn, I was reading this week, says it like this. He says, in the 10th commandment, the Old Testament comes very close to the new. Moses shakes hands with Jesus. One of the things we learn with this 10th commandment is that God has been after our hearts, not just our behavior, from the beginning, my friends. And you see, coveting is a real problem it's a real problem because it stands in the way of that. And, and it's a real problem because none of us escape it. It's universal. But coveting is also a real problem because of its destructive power. Okay, And that's the, the second problem with coveting I want to look at is that, that coveting is, I would say, it's extremely, extremely destructive. Not only that, it's, it's deceivingly destructive deceivingly destructive. It's deceiving because I think of all of the commands as probably the one that's most often dismissed, right? It's the one that all of us just sort of ignore or, or excuse away or, or dismiss, right? Because it seems like such a little thing. I mean, coveting? Come on. That's no big deal. Besides, everyone does it. So why does it matter, right? It's just coveting. I'd like to suggest to you, if I can use the analogy, I think that coveting is like, it's like a spark, right? Like a spark. The thing with a spark is that it can very quickly spread, right? A single spark can become a raging wildfire of destruction. And there, there's a lot of examples of this specifically in Scripture. Uh, and so I want to look at a, discuss a couple of the examples that, that we find in the Old Testament, moving forward through the, the history of, 
of Israel. The first one you find in the book of 1 Kings, uh, chapter 21. And in 1 Kings 21, we read this really interesting story about this guy named Ahab uh, and his wife Jezebel. Now, the deal with Ahab is that he was the king. He was the king of the northern kingdom uh, of Israel. And right next to his palace, right beside his palace, was this vineyard. Okay? And apparently it was a pretty nice vineyard. It was owned by this guy named Naboth. Okay? Now the deal is Ahab wanted it really bad. Right? He wanted that vineyard really bad. And the text tells us that he wanted that vineyard and he wanted to turn it into his personal vegetable garden. Okay? There was convenience to that. If I could grow my vegetables right here next to my palace, then that saves a lot of time. I don't have to go out in the country and get my produce or whatever. So he wanted this vegetable garden. And so he goes to Naboth and he's like, here's the deal. I want to buy you out. I want this, right? I'll pay you a fair price, and then you can move out away outside of the city and grow your, your grapes and, and whatever. Interestingly, uh, you, could, you could say it this way, that he wanted to use his power to acquire this, this prime real estate and, uh, and to push the poor out of the city and into the margins. Right? So this is nothing new, right? Gentrification and and displacement. This is happening 3,000 years ago. The, uh, the upset in the story comes when Naboth is like, no, nah, I'm, not, I'm not game. I'm not game for this deal because Naboth feared God. And established in, in the law of, of the Hebrew people was that God had tied specific people, specific families to specific plots of land. And so Naboth said, I, I can't do it. I can't sell you this because this is the inheritance that God gave to my fathers and my father's fathers. When we first settled here in the promised land, we've had this thing for generations. I can't let it go. I can't disregard God's commands. So how does Ahab respond? At first he's furious, just furious. That's funny. And then he goes home. And he pouts about it. It actually says he lays in his bed, he refuses to eat, he looks at the wall, and he's sad. Right? Uh, and then Jezebel, his wife, comes in, and together they sort of devise this plan, this plan to acquire that which they had coveted. And in the process, they wind up breaking commandments number six, number eight, and number nine, in addition to number ten. So what they do, uh, first of all, they hired some men to come and lie for them, bringing false accusations of blasphemy against this guy, Naboth, thou shalt not lie. After this, after they accused him of blasphemy, they unjustly stoned him to death. Thou shalt not murder. Also what? So that they could forcefully take his vineyard and grow their vegetables. Thou shalt not steal. Do you see that what began as just coveting, I mean, it's just coveting. It's not a big deal, right? What began as just breaking the simplest and the least of these commandments turns into capital crime, right? That's the story of Ahab and, uh, and Jezebel. And uh, for the record, the story didn't end well for Ahab and Jezebel. It goes on from here. You have to read it. For yourself. They also wind up getting killed later on. Uh, but their deaths involve some angry eunuchs, a stampede of horses, a pack of wild dogs, and a whole lot of blood. So 
It's like an episode of Game of Thrones. Uh, you guys just have to read that one for yourself. It's crazy. Um, anyway, coveting is destructive. It's destructive. It spreads. It destroys. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, but hold on a second, Nathan, hold on, because Ahab, Ahab was a bad dude. He was evil anyway. He, he was actually described as one of the, the most evil of all of the kings in the history of Israel. And so maybe for him, maybe it wasn't a coveting issue. Maybe it was a character issue. I wouldn't ever do what, what he did, right? All right. So I'll, gi- I'll give you that. Um, let's look at another example together. This time, let's look at one of the best and most righteous men in all the Bible. How many of you remember the story of King David and Bathsheba? (laughs) Yeah, so 2 Samuel 11 and 12. David, whose faith was strong, but he needed proof. So when he saw her bathing on the roof, her beauty in the moonlight overthrew you. You guys know how this ended, right? He broke commandment number 10. He coveted his friend's wife, which led to adultery, number seven, which is also theft, by the way, because he's stealing another man's wife, which is number eight. And then there's this whole attempt to cover up the lie, commandment number nine, and eventually it resulted in the murder of Uriah, number six. It was just a simple spark of David's coveting. It grew into a wildfire of destruction with tragic results. And this was David. This was David, the guy that's described in Scripture as a man after God's own heart. David. Nobody is immune, right? Nobody is immune here. Those are ancient, historic examples in reality. There's all sorts of modern examples. This is happening all the time in our society today. I don't know how many of you have been paying attention to the news recently, but have any of you guys been following the story of all these college admission scandals that are happening right now? Yeah. So if if you're unfamiliar, here's the deal. Uh, Wealthy, uh, influential parents uh, have spent, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribe money in order to secure admission into top schools across our country for uh, their children who didn't have the grades, who didn't have the merit to secure the position on their own. That's what's happening. So, The list of those involved, too, is pretty shocking. So, Any Full House fans out there? Anyone like the Full House back in the 90s? Yeah, Aunt Becky. Really? Aunt Becky? Come on. I heard that. I was like, did Uncle Jesse know the whole time? Uh, No, but where did it start? Here's my point. Where did this start? It starts with coveting. (laughs) Coveting. I, I want my child to have the best. I need my child to be the best and to get the best. It's the spark, right? It's the spark, which turns into lying, which then turns into stealing, stealing spots from other students who had earned them, right? It's criminal activity. It started with coveting. I think that this story that's, that's breaking right now is actually a really fascinating and telling example 
of our society, especially, man, especially in a society where, where the wealthiest uh, effectively want for nothing, right? I mean, the, the, the wealthiest of our society, I don't think, they no longer desire their neighbor's stuff, their neighbor's donkey or servant or whatever, right? Like, they've, they've got their own. They've got all that. But what they do covet for is their children. They want their kid to have the best donkey someday. They want their kid to, have, to, to be served. We're living in a society where now we don't just covet for ourselves, we covet for our kids, right? My kids will have the best, and I will stop at nothing. They will be the best, they, they will get the best education, and they're going to play on the best sports team, and nothing, nothing will hinder or stand in the way of their success and their achievements, right? Did you guys see that? Pay attention. <laughs> Pay attention, Bend, Oregon. <laughs> it's happening all around us. Pay attention lest this destroy you <laughs> and your children. I'll just leave that there. Uh, finally, let's see, problem number three. Uh, one last problem with coveting is that it enslaves us. What do I mean by that? I mean that, that we tend to become enslaved to the things that we desire and that we will stop at nothing in order to acquire these things, right? Charge it. I need that. Charge it. Rack up the debt or upgrade. Get that new car payment that you know you probably can't really afford or undergo the... the cosmetic surgery to make yourself look a, a little bit better or we'll work ourselves to the, to the bone, we'll neglect our families, we will not rest until we have that thing. The better body, the better car, the more stable income, the promotion, the perfect child, whatever it is, before we know it, that thing is ruling us. <laughs> it's ruling our life. We've become enslaved to it. To get, a bit, to get a bit personal for a moment, uh, I want to speak to my own profession, my own calling, um, in that I, I don't know that I've ever met a group of people that are better at coveting uh, than pastors, right? The tricky thing is, is what are they coveting? It seems like good stuff, right? What are pastors coveting? They're coveting a, a bigger church, church growth, Right? They're coveting the better story or the healthier congregation or the greater influence and mission in their city and around the world, and it can become intoxicating. It can become intoxicating and enslaving. And I know this because I have been this. Right? I was once the pastor who worked 70-plus hours a week, all in the name of ministry, all in the name of trying to build the perfect congregation while, meanwhile, my wife and kids are at home never seeing me. <laughs> but, oh, man, oh, man, if we could just be a little bit more effective in ministry, though, right? If we could just reach a couple more lost souls with the gospel, right? Meanwhile, I'm losing my own. <laughs> meanwhile, I have no sense of peace. 
in a lot of ways, I think I was enslaved. And the tricky thing about it, like I said, is that all the things that I was doing, I felt like they were good things. They were the right things, right? Yet it's wrecking me. It's wrecking me. One of the problems with coveting um, is that enough is never enough. You know what I mean? I remember once uh, reading uh, this interview. A reporter uh, was interviewing Nelson Rockefeller, who was like the heir of the Rockefeller estate, and he was also a, a politician. I think he was vice president at one point under maybe Gerald Ford. And so he's a man with like incredible wealth, incredible influence, and incredible power. And the reporter asked him the question, Nelson, how much money does it take to be happy? His brutally honest answer, he said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Enough is never enough. We've mentioned several times uh, throughout this teaching series that, that this, the, the Decalogue, these ten words, these ten commandments, uh, they were God's, effectively, they were God's instructions for living the abundant life, for living the life of true freedom. And these commandments came uh, historically right on the heels of Israel's deliverance from hundreds of years in slavery. And as we've discussed several times, while it only takes a day to get a person out of slavery, it can take years, decades, generations to get the slavery out of the person. And you see this 10th commandment, I think in a really unique way, is the commandment that, that deals most directly with our heart's natural inclination towards slavery. Because we look around and we see the things that we want and then those wants become needs and then those needs control us. And here's the, 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 the really bizarre thing is that then our, our neighbors, right? Our neighbors, instead of being those that we are called to love, actually become obstacles to our fulfillment, don't they? Our neighbors become the competition because they have that thing. That thing that I want. This is the opposite of what God desires for us. Again, to quote Albert Wynn, he says, God's dream is of a world where people are more concerned with their neighbor's good than with their neighbor's goods. And thinking about it this week, I become convinced uh, that you cannot covet someone's stuff and also love that person at the same time. And so in a weird way, this act of coveting, not, not only does it enslave us, not only is it destructive, it actually undercuts God's mission and purpose for our lives. <laughs> God, who's called us to love him above all and love our neighbors as ourselves. Coveting makes that impossible. It derails the mission. That's a problem. So what do we do? Right? Now, coveting is, if it really is a big deal, if it's really this, this problematic and destructive, if it really is something that every one of us deals with, what are we supposed to do? What is it that we need? In a word, uh, contentment. Contentment is what we need. It's the opposite of coveting. Earlier we read uh, a passage from Philippians in which 
Paul said, uh, he said, I've learned the secret of being content in any circumstance. Any circumstance, content. He goes on to say, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Really quick, just a word of clarification. I've often seen uh, these, these verses, and particularly that last sentence, pulled out of context and used to make really weird uh, like personal power claims about how, uh, how we can accomplish great feats. We can accomplish great things with Jesus, right? So probably most often I've heard this used or misquoted by uh, like Christian athletes who do something awesome. They catch the winning touchdown or whatever, and they're like, yeah, I can do all things through Christ, <laughs> right? Um, so that's not what Paul's saying here. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, I can, I can endure anything. I can withstand any hardship, any circumstance, loss, gain, whatever. Why? Because Christ is with me. You know what's most shocking about this statement from Paul? What are his circumstances in this moment? Like as he's, as he's penning these, these very words, where is he? Does anybody know? Prison. Yeah. He's saying this from prison, from prison, where he was likely chained, get this, 24-7, chained to a prison guard, right? Awaiting what he believes to be his own demise. We found that out earlier in the book of Philippians. He's like, I don't know if I'm going to make it. And actually, if I get to peace out and go be with Jesus, that would be pretty cool. But maybe it's better for you guys that I stick around a while. He doesn't know if he's going to survive this, right? And yet, what does he say? I'm good. Right? Yeah, I'm chained to this guard. But I'm content. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if they're going to kill me tomorrow. It's okay. Yeah, I haven't eaten in a while. I'm pretty hungry. But you know what? That's all right. I'm good. I'm okay. (laughs) I'm not sure about you guys. I read that and I'm like, what? 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 Are you serious? Are you okay? Like, how are you okay right now? (laughs) How are you just good with all of this, right? Oh my gosh. My internet went out a week ago, and for a whole evening, I couldn't stream Netflix. I was furious, right? I was furious. My family, we had to sit around and talk to each other and interact. It was horrible. Um, Horrible. Just kidding just kidding. I'm just kidding. We actually linked my TV to my cell phone's hotspot, so we were good. (laughs) Don't worry about us. We were fine. Uh, We made it. We made it through. Uh, Paul, he finds what he calls the secret to a truly contented life. How do we do that? What What is the secret to true contentment, to freedom from coveting? I'd say it this way. It's not about what It's not about what you have. It's about what has you. It's not about what you have. It's about what has you. St. Augustine got this. He famously said that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. That's contentment finding rest in thee. Or King David's own words here. In Psalm 23, 
the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I've got God. I want for nothing. That's contentment. He restores my soul, he says. Let me just ask you, think, think, think about your own life for a moment. What are the things that you are looking to, to find fulfillment? Is it security or property or wealth, right, like Ahab? Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's romance and uh, sexual fulfillment, right, like, like David, for others of us, maybe it's, it's our reputation or, or our career, right? Our success, or rather the success of our children. Is it having the perfect body? Is it setting a new PR? Friends, hear me. None of that will satisfy you, ultimately. None of that will satisfy. Don't get me wrong. It could be fun. It could be great, and and it might make you happy for a hot minute. But man, if that is what you sell your heart to, you'll be left with an empty soul. If you want to get really practical about this, we could even just talk about these things sort of through the lens of risk management, right? And we could say it this way, don't build your life, don't build your worth, don't build your meaning and your contentment on that which can so quickly and so easily be taken away, right? Because think about it. Now, God forbid any of this ever happened to you, but if you build your life on your career, what happens when the market turns and boom, in a moment, it's gone, you lost it. If you build all of your life and worth of whatever on your family, God forbid it ever happens. But what happens if in a moment they're taken away? Or if your identity is all built on your, your health and wellness, what, what happens when you get that diagnosis or you have the accident on Bachelor and now you're paralyzed, right? You've lost it in a moment. These things, these things that we so often covet can come and go Do you know what doesn't? Jesus. The love of God, a God who promises never to leave or forsake us. So finally, I want to say this, the true true contentment, where does it come from? It flows from union with and reliance on Christ. If the Bible's correct, If the Bible is correct, then it makes very clear that we were made for a relationship with God. We were made to exist in relationship to our creator and savior. And so if that's missing, of course we don't have contentment, right? Of course we don't have contentment. We're incomplete, right? The batteries aren't included. (laughs) We're not going to function like we should if this is missing. We were designed, friends, to live in close communion with God, and that happens, that only happens through Jesus. And so at the end of the day, like Jesus is the answer, right? And I know that that sounds trite, and it doesn't make it untrue. I know that that sounds like the Sunday school answer. Oh yeah, Nathan was like, Jesus is the answer. Great. 
Yeah, he is. <laughs> it's true. Be reminded of that this morning. When we are connected with Christ, when Jesus is our center, nothing can ruin us. Nothing can ruin us. Do you know why? Do you know why nothing can ruin us? Because he was ruined for us. Because he was ruined for us. He gave his life on the cross to make our life in him possible so that guilty sinners like us, covetous and, and, and lustful and discontent and malcontent sinners could be reconciled to a perfect God as dearly loved children. Amen? So that we can join David in crying, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not My deepest need has been met. I've received a greater love than I'll ever know. He restores my soul. I am content. Friends, uh, does your heart long for this contentment? Jesus is waiting for you. He will have you. Will you build your life upon his love? It's a firm foundation. It's a firm foundation. Would you stand with me? I'd like to pray for us. Heavenly Father, as we wrestle with uh, what are often deep and difficult truths of our own internal brokenness and our internal struggle, I'm glad uh, that the, the bad news of our brokenness is so um, overwhelmingly overshadowed by the good news of your goodness and love. I'm thankful this morning that you are a God of grace and that you have extended your love and grace to us through the gift of your son. Jesus, we're thankful for you this morning, that you lived a perfect life, and that you went to the cross, and that you rose again, that we might be new beings, washed clean, forgiven, loved. I pray this morning that you would help us to find true contentment a contentment that, that, that overshadows our circumstances, our struggles, a contentment that's deeper than um, yeah, any circumstance, any gain or any loss. For if we have you, we have it all. You are good. God, we love you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name.